Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. James Thomas. He's an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, He's working on the um, public health effects, the ethics of coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. Um, He has an interest in complex systems and studying them and modeling them and doing network analysis. And, uh, you know, we'll get into his research. So, Dr. Thomas, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to talk to you. So what was your typical course of, uh, of research until the, uh, you know, the recent coronavirus outbreak and how has it changed since, uh, since the outbreak? Well, my typical line of research uh, is looking at social determinants of infectious diseases. For example, I spent some time looking at the effects of mass incarceration on communities and how that affects mostly those left behind. There are others who are studying the people who are in prison, but I was studying the communities that they were taken from and how um, mass incarceration affected those and increased um, teen births, increased sexually transmitted diseases and some other things. And um, I was also doing a lot of work in developing countries with their health information systems and uh, for the last 10 years, I've been working all around the world and developing those systems and was beginning to get into the ethics of um, digital data and how they are used in public health. This was stemming from my work with health information systems. And then COVID happened. And with COVID, I was pulled back into an area of research where I had worked before. Hmm. When, when you say a uh, mass incarceration, I mean, what, what form did that take previously? Like, why would there be, was there a mass incarceration because of uh, an outbreak or it was just? No, it was, be, well, yeah, you, you could say because of an outbreak, it was the war on drugs. And so it was the cocaine epidemic and uh, the U.S., uh, their, their primary way of fighting the cocaine epidemic was imprisonment and the U.S., because they were putting in prison so many people, either users or sellers, they ended up, we ended up with the highest rate of incarceration of any country in the world. So I had been working in communities with a um, high proportion of African-Americans, and they were more affected by the war on drugs than whites were because, oh, just a number of things. But one that's often cited is that the type of cocaine used by African-Americans got a different sentence than the uh, type of cocaine used by whites. And uh, it was about a tenfold difference in sentencing. And so the number of African-Americans in prison just exploded. And there were communities that I was working in where you could walk down the street and look at any given house and it had been touched by incarceration in some way. Either somebody was in prison or had just gotten out or was uh, in, in jail and ready for trial. 
so it was a, a, a massive effect on some communities. With the with the coronavirus, I mean, would you consider the lockdowns to be mass incarceration worldwide? Are there any uh, similarities? Oh, that's an interesting an interesting way of putting it. Um, I guess the, the the first thing that I would think about is those who are incarcerated actually in the prisons and how they are affected by coronavirus and how they can't run away from it. They can't become isolated. Now there there are some some um, steps that states and cities have taken to release people to put them on house arrest to uh, put the ankle bracelets on them and and get them out of the prison where they're just a sitting duck. Um, but to your point of of the incarceration of the the population, that's not a term I, I would use for for the population with our ability to get out and, and move around. You know, just this weekend, I uh, got in my car, I drove out into the country, I found an isolated country road, and I took a walk on that road. Didn't in, didn't encounter anybody, but I had the freedom to do that. So. I, I would not call my isolation a, a type of incarceration. Yeah, I mean, well, just, just for listeners, this is totally my thought. It's not yours. You know, I'm not saying it's yours at all. Um, I think it is. I, it seems to me like, you know, a lot of the world is a jail, and I'm very thankful I live in the U.S. because in, uh, in other countries, it, it does seem to me that, you know, in some countries, uh, people appear to be beaten if they go outside and, and forced to stay home. And even if you looked at it as a voluntary thing, and uh, people were staying inside a house for weeks on end. I mean, it's, I guess you can even call it self-incarceration, whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, what is the effects of that? Are you looking at that at all? Or is that well, really too far afield of what you normally look at? No, it's, it's, it's not too far afield. You're, you're touching on some things that I do think about. Now, um, there, certainly there are countries where um, house arrest is common and where some authoritarian governments where there's a there's a high level of control. We might talk about the Uyghurs in the western portion of China and the uh, incarceration or the camps that have that they have put, been put in by the tens of thousands. Um, so, you know, one could look at that or one could look at how an authoritarian government's surveillance is moving in part because of COVID, moving in the direction of digital surveillance um, into, well, there are examples in China of the use of drones with cameras that are uh, able to measure the heat of, of subjects on the ground and uh, using that to determine if somebody has a fever and has left their house and should be back in their house. Um, we are talking here, and other countries are, of using cell phone GPS data to monitor where people are, and if it's known that they are infected, to take some measures to get them back in their houses. So um, there, there is a level of, hmm, I'm not still going to avoid the word incarceration, but I'm going to use coercion. There is still a level of coercion. It varies by government. It varies by country. But there, there is an element of that in public health, and that's, that's one of the ways that public health ethics differs from medical ethics, because in medicine, there's a very strong emphasis given to autonomy, and the, the autonomy is, is uh, raised to the top or to a top level because of the abuses that a physician or a clinician 
can have over a patient. And so to protect the patient, we, we say that that person's autonomy is very important. They have the ability to say, no, I don't want to take that step. I don't want to take that pill. In public health, where especially you see this with infectious diseases, one person's infection is another person's exposure. And if you don't constrain the autonomy of some individuals, they will infect others. And so for the good of the greater community, some people will have to stay inside and particularly those known to be infected. So there is a, um, a level of, uh, a greater level of constraining of civil liberties in some instances in public health than you see in medical ethics. Hmm. So, I mean, do you have any, from your past experience, do you have any guidance? I know it's up to, you know, individual countries and the U.S., individual states and et cetera, mm -hmm. the guidance. I really, I, I really see no guidance. It's all over the place. But uh, I don't know. Do you have any guidance based on yeah. your past experience? Yes. Yeah, I do. Um, so th there is a, a set of principles that were developed in um, a city called Syracuse. They're called the Syracuse Principles. And one of them, these are um, instances of, or, or what needs to be considered when constraining civil liberties. And one of those principles is that you use the least restrictive, effective measure. So um, in the case of social isolation, for example, then you, you look to, um, constrain people as little as possible while having the needed effect to protect the health of the public. And that allows you to titrate, if you will, the, the amount of constraint that is used, whether uh, in some countries um, they will have police giving fines to people who are found outside. In other countries, they don't do that. So they, they will vary to some degree in how much constriction they are going to uh, enforce. Now, now, one of the challenges with COVID is that the incubation period is taken to be uh, somewhere in the vicinity of two weeks, or at least we allow for two weeks for incubation to occur. And so the actions that are taken, if, if, you're, if you're wanting to judge effectiveness, you don't see it until two weeks later. So the, the steps that we are taking today will be able to judge two weeks from now. The steps that we took two weeks ago were finally able to judge today. And that makes some of the ethical decision-making really challenging because you don't want to overshoot, you don't want to overconstrain, but you don't know yet what's going to be effective. And that's, that's particularly true with COVID where we know so little about the biology of this organism and um, it, its infectiousness. And um, you know, we're, we're learning some of these things now. We, we've been in it for a while now, but initially we didn't know um, what, what level of infectiousness to assign it. We didn't know what proportion of people were asymptomatic. We didn't know how long the organism lived on surfaces and whether even if it did live, was it infectious? So many questions of things that we don't know about this virus that would help us make these decisions and help us to toe an ethical line. Do you think that information is, even if it's known, is it being communicated? Or, you know, based on the reactions, for instance, of governors around the USA, which are all different, yeah. completely different, do you think it's being listened to? I mean, do you? what's your read on what's going on? Boy, this... 
you know, the, the, the probably the chief ethical mishap of this epidemic has been the confusion in the communication. It has not been clear. We get different voices, and depending on our politics uh, in, in, the, in, in the contemporary world, people tend to sort themselves out by politics, and, and what they listen to gets sorted out along with it. So we will have 10 voices speaking about COVID and steps that need to be taken and steps that cities need to take, and each person is going to listen to their own chosen voice, uh, and it's harder to, to, to listen to a single voice. So we've got Anthony Fauci saying one thing. We've got Donald Trump saying another. We've got Governor Cuomo saying a third. Um, so it's, um, it, it's very challenging. It's very challenging for us to, to, um, to, to work together you know, we're, we're, it's often said, we're all in this together, but there are elements of what we are doing where we are not. We are not working together in the ways that we could or should. Well, so, uh, I mean, I guess, what are, you, what are your thoughts on what's, what's likely to happen from here over the next, I don't know, we'll take it bit by bit, you know, uh, next month, next three months, next six months, yeah. you know, based on your past experience, what do you see happening probabilistically? So one of the the, um, the tragedies of public health ethics is that very little of it is done in advance of of the ethical issue. It it tends to it tends to be clarified and codified after a major mistake. Take the Tuskegee syphilis study for example, um, where this this occurred in the um, I think the 30s, 40s, and up through the 70s, early 70s in Alabama where uh, uneducated black men with syphilis were enrolled in a natural history study to see what happens with untreated syphilis. And it started at a time when there was no treatment for syphilis, um, but shortly after, or maybe it was even during World War II, a treatment was uh, found, but withheld, actively withheld from these men. It was eventually revealed, eventually stopped, and following that, we we, um, we we moved into what we now recognize as our as much of our research ethics at, at universities and elsewhere. It was a result in large part because of this injustice that occurred through a study. So now bringing that back home to COVID. Um, it's if, if we're going to follow that same pattern, it's likely that we are going to get, oh, let's say slapped in the face by some things that we that that we see that become clearly unethical. They be, they become clearly unjust, and as we recoil from that, then we'll begin to think about what should we do differently. What's going to have to change so we don't do that again? Now, one of the, the things on the closer horizon that I see happening is the, the easing up of the social isolation. Um, the isolation is not anything that any of us enjoys and any of us wants to prolong any longer than it needs to. But um, as we see that being lessened or loosened in, in some states, then people are, are interacting more and transmission will occur. It, it's just a biological fact. It's going to happen. We will have more cases and we'll have more deaths. And they, they could be 
quite striking in numbers. And um, from what I read this morning in one of the newspapers I read, uh, apparently we're already seeing a rise in cases in some of these places where people are interacting more. So we're, we're likely to see rises in cases and deaths and maybe a reaction to that and saying, okay, everybody run back home and stay away and stay out of, out of public spaces for a while until things calm down again. And then people will uh, get quarantined. I mean, yeah. wouldn't it just keep happening? It doesn't seem like we're ever going to get rid of this virus. And, yeah, it does. It, it seems oh. like, yeah, it, it could, it could be like a sawtooth ending to the epidemic of going up and down. And um, if, if what, what has happened with epidemics in the past is sometimes, oftentimes, the organism changes on its own and, and becomes less virulent. Um, that's something that could happen. Um, we, we could get this magical vaccine and, um, and let, let's just say it, it's an effective one and it comes soon and you know, that could change things. We could get an, anti, uh, an antiviral medication that could make death less likely. That would have a big effect. So there, there are things that can happen that will that will change the course, but uh, you're right; it it does seem to be quite long lasting. Well, I mean, also too, the news is uh, you know the media has frightened everyone to death, literally, mm. and you know it, they they make statements that just are ridiculous. You know, more people are going to die. Well, unless people undie and come back from the dead, yes, more people are going to die. But percentage wise, is that a lot? Is that a little? Is that acceptable? I mean, if you look at also the backdrop of approximately 7,500 people in the U.S. die every day of all causes, that's not mentioned. And, you know, those lives never seem to be uh, cared about for the most part. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's just a, the dynamics just seem to make no sense. Mm. I don't know. It's just a, I just don't know how this is going to resolve when, uh, you know, the facts are, I don't even know if you call them, I don't know what you call them facts or they're just they can be interpreted any which way, it seems like. Part of the problem is that this is a disease that is affecting wealthier people. And it, it affects the poor more. I don't want to, I don't want to neglect that point. But um, it, it's affecting all strata of society. And so there, there's a bigger reaction. Now, when I started in public health, I started in the Congo. It was called Zaire at the time. And I was focusing on starvation. And um, soon after that, I was working in Kenya on diarrheal disease. And those, at that time, those two conditions, malnutrition, starvation, diarrheal disease, were the major killers worldwide. And um, we we tend to forget those things. We've we've gotten numb or accustomed to certain causes of death, particularly when they affect populations that we're not part of. You know, the the, the people in the villages of the Congo that that uh, most of us never see. So there, you're you're right. There there's a lot of deaths that we just ignore or accept. Yeah, that's why some of these assertions. I mean, you know, like. Again, I don't know if this is true or not, but, you know, uh, people couldn't get uh, what was called elective surgery, and some of that's for cancer, mm -hmm. for organ transplants. People couldn't do regular checkups. I mean, I'm one of them, you know, for for cancer and stuff. So it's just it's just crazy, you know, that 
oh, if you die of coronavirus, okay, that's that's bad. But if anything else, ah, who cares? No big deal. Yeah, yeah. I just it just doesn't make any sense, and I just don't know what. uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to happen. That's why I guess you know. Have you studied even localized, um, not pandemics, but epidemics like this, and in terms of behavior of people? You know, what have you observed, and are there any learnings from that? Well, yes, I have. And um, soon after I got my PhD in, at UCLA, ages ago now, I worked for the Los Angeles County Health Department doing outbreak investigations and did that for about three years. And one of the things that I, I noticed was that when, um, when, when somebody else, when, when you see somebody else getting sick, people would report that these occurrences of their colleagues are getting sick and, and they would report it as, you know, a cluster of cases or an outbreak. But when they were part of it themselves, all of a sudden it was an epidemic and it, it rose to a higher level of importance. So I, I have seen um, pretty consistently that um, when something is experienced by somebody that, that they tend to elevate it, but they also tend to focus on that one thing and, and become a bit um, with, with tunnel vision to focus on that one thing and neglect the others. Um, so th- I, I see that happening some with, with COVID. I've seen it happen with other epidemics. So does this give you any idea on, again, what, I mean, so we, we spoke about this partially already, you know, as things open up, we're going to see an increase in cases, whether that's mm-hmm. characterized as too much or not. I don't know. It depends who's speaking and who's listening. Um, I mean, there's no doubt about that. We're going to see an increase. It's not not going to happen. But what do you think? How do you think this is going to play out? Or it's anyone's guess. I mean, do you do you feel like you have any insight into what may happen? Or you know, to say wouldn't be any better than anyone else's guess. I wish I had the wisdom to 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 see clearly what's coming around the corner. But so the so some of the modelers, the the, the mathematical modelers that are looking at the epidemic and the um, projections of, of what's going to be happening, they, they, they base their models on different kinds of, of questions and, and different kinds of data. The um, Institute for Health Metrics uh, and Evaluation, IHME in Seattle, they tend to use data from other countries, like from China or Italy, and um, to, to look at the experience of what has happened there and, and then base their own models on uh, their own American models on, on those kinds of data. Others will take, um, some of my colleagues locally here, are, are asking a different question, not, not what's going to happen, but the question or you know, the number of cases and what the epidemic curve is going to look like. But the question they are asking is, when will our hospitals be overwhelmed? When will we be um, turning people away from ventilators or beds? And the... Uh, I'm, I'm in North Carolina, and, and we recently shifted to a, a slightly um, less severe social distancing, which we call phase one. And uh, it, it's a modest move, but it, it's, uh, it's a move in the direction of easing up social distancing. And from what I can tell, the modeling that supports that move is based on the uh, projection that we've got room in our ICUs and our ERs for more people. So it's not that the epidemic is over, but if, if the whole purpose of, insi- of, of isolation is to flatten the curve, it's not to bring the curve to zero, but just to space it out 
so that we don't overwhelm the ERs and the ICUs. Um, so that's probably that, that's probably the way that we're going to manage it is we're going to try to pace the the severe cases as best we can, not try to avoid them altogether. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, is that being communicated? If it's not, then what are people supposed to do with the information that, again, is put out, oh, the number of cases are going to rise, more people are going to die. That's used mm-hmm. as, it's just used as a scare tactic. So why, I, I just don't understand, why is there no guidance? I don't even hear it from one person. Much like you said, there's a lot of people talking, you know, yeah. Fauci, et cetera. I'm not hearing it from anybody. Mm. Any any numbers, any guidance, you know, on, I mean, are they just politically unable to give any because they would be like vilified, you know, one life is too much type stuff? Or, I mean, and so what do you do then? If we're all a bucket of crabs and a crab tries to climb out and the other crabs pull it back in, which is what seems to be happening, then what do we do? How do you fix mm. this? Well, um, you're asking questions bigger than I am, Richard. <laughs> but um, but what I have noticed is that there. So we have we have voices that are more scientific, and we have voices that are more political. The um, and but even some of the political ones are listening to the scientists and echoing what what they are saying. So I I think there th- that the large majority of the public is able to discern the kinds of steps that should be taken, the kinds of steps they can take. And there, there's a, oftentimes there is a greater caution on the part of some than what the governor would, would have them do, for example. So there, there is that, but um, will that protect us from the other, other element of the population that is ready to run out of their house into a party or into a mall um, and the number of cases that will occur because of that, you know, I, that, that won't be contained to just those people who get out. It will filter back to those who are socially isolated. Um, that, that's, that's part of the challenge that we face. To your point of, is anybody saying it's not a matter of trying to keep cases as low as possible, it's a matter of pacing our resources I, I, I'd have to agree with you there. I don't hear that being said, perhaps because it doesn't feel compassionate, but um, I, I think it's a reality and it, it's consistent with the initial message of flattening the curve, isn't it? It's, um, we, we, didn't, we wanted to minimize that, that upper part of the, the curve that was so far above what our hospitals will, were able to manage. And um, and, and we have found with experience that the social isolation does achieve that. And from the things we have learned about the virus um, since then, we, we have seen that, that social isolation actually does a fair amount. And, and now as we are correcting, we're gonna get a, a natural experiment, if you will, able to look across cities and states to see how much is too much loosening up and how much is appropriate. It gets back yeah, to that, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, it gets back to that question of the least restrictive um, effective measure, and maybe it's the flip side of that. It's the, um, ah, 
the, the uh, what would be the flip side of that? I want to say the the least liberal or the least um, that that word gets confused these days. The 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 the, uh, the amount of the, the correct amount of freedom that that doesn't um, send huge numbers of people into the hospital. Yeah, I mean, again, maybe this is glib, maybe not, but auto accidents, let's say, cause I don't know. 20, 30, 50,000 deaths a year. Mm-hmm. Why are those deaths acceptable? Why are we allowed to drive cars? Yeah, why because are those, they, they, you know, they why become, are those lives important? You know? Yeah, we've, we've become numb to that. And we, we've, right. we've come to accept it as part of everyday life. And, um, you know, well, that's part I mean, of the uh, normal we want to get back to. <laughs> right. Wanna, I mean, like, like, even look at a better corollary. How about flu? You know, in the U.S., uh-huh. the CDC themselves say... 30 to 50, 60,000 people a year die of flu in the U.S. alone. Why is that? No one cares about, I mean, who cares? It's mm-hmm. totally fine. No one blinks an eye. Well, Why COVID, is this? Yeah, How COVID, do you put this in context? Since the models appear to be very wrong, at least so far, and the deaths are what they are over this time period, but why is there no analysis? Okay, we thought this would happen. So far, it hasn't happened. So this is the plan going forward. Again, there's no feedback in this. There's no reasoning. There's no logic. There's no guidance. Well, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't go quite that far. Um, I, we, we do see at state levels and even at the national level uh, an articulation of the kinds of things that we want to see as we move to lessen the social isolation. We, uh, we want to see the, the number of deaths on the down downside. We want to see the number of hospitalizations going down for a couple of weeks. So there, there are these metrics that are given that we are looking for so that we know when we can loosen things up. And that, that is what's occurring in my state. The, the rationale given for taking the steps that it did just a couple of days ago um, was the data of what they were observing in trends of cases in North Carolina. And then they took the step to loosen things up a bit. Well, I mean, I would think that all states would be aware, aware of this, and maybe some are using others as experimentation. Maybe not. I don't know. So I guess uh, it's just a mixed pot. And, well, the, uh, yeah, most states are aware of these kinds of, of metrics. And, and ways of pacing things. Not all of them are following it. Um, they, they have different impulses of, of how they want to go about it. And I, I believe that we probably are headed into a natural experiment where we can see where things are, are going to be enough and where they're going to be too much. Okay. So, what, you know, we're pretty much at the end. I, you know, I hope I haven't uh, driven you nuts with my questions, but what what guidance do you have for people based on what they're looking to figure out about, you know, the current coronavirus pandemic? What what guidance would you have for people? Where can they go? Uh, what are what are some things that would help them think about what's going on and maybe how their own behavior should change or not change? Would you have any recommendations? Well, um, so you're you're probably referring to people who are, um, let's just say, uh, residents of the country. Um, there are there are places they can go. I'm, I'm finding that uh, the Centers for Disease Control has good advice on its website that, that guides individuals on the kinds of steps that they can take. It, it get, has good advice on masks, for example. Um, 
And then uh, for, the, for the professionals and the policymakers, um, I have developed a website called Pandemic Ethics, which um, takes, uh, shows the policymakers what ethical steps they can take to, to set policies for a, a city or a town or a state. Um, but again, your, your listeners are probably more likely to be those who are residents, and I would, I would point them to the, the Centers for Disease Control. Okay. Well, very good. Well, James, thanks for coming on the podcast, and, uh, and I appreciate all your advice and, uh, you know, and thoughts. Uh, you're welcome. It was, a, it was a, a good, lively conversation. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.